Agua. I want to do something a little different today. I want to talk about something that you probably have no idea is even taking place, but we probably should, right? Imagine what it would be like to be trapped underground and nobody can get to you and you don't know if you're going to be able to get out. You don't know if you're going to be able to survive. Water is coming into the place where you are trapped. And as that water is rising, you're looking for pockets of air to see if possibly you can breathe. Not to mention you've been down there now for weeks and you need to figure out how you're going to survive, how you're going to eat, how you're going to breathe. Um, this is horrible. This is just an absolutely horrible thing that has been happening for the better part of the last month. And you know what's funny about this? It's happening right on the border with the United States. It's 70 miles from the U.S. border. And so let me ask the question this way. I want you to stop and think right now. If this, if this were happening instead of in Guajila, Mexico, it were happening just 70 miles north in the United States, you would have heard of this story ad nauseum. You would have heard of this story so many times. It would be the front page story in all of our newspapers. It would probably be the lead story on NBC and CBS. Can you imagine? Miners trapped underground. Nobody can get to them. Their family above crying. Officials trying to come up with everything they can possibly do to get down to save them but nobody seems to be able to figure it out. Meanwhile, time is running out. They could be suffocating. We don't know whether they're dead or alive, and this is happening. This is a human drama that's taking place right there as we speak in Mexico. How could something like this happen? Sure, there are some reports, like this one. Officials say a tunnel wall collapsed on August 3rd, triggering an explosion of rushing floodwaters from an adjacent shaft, trapping the miners ages 22 to 61, about 200 feet underground. You can see the depth as crews rappel down. The effort hampered by surging water and debris gushing into the mine. Authorities say they need the level to drop for responders to gain access, but water from a nearby mine keeps flooding in. So this is happening as we speak. Imagine, as I understand it, they were in this coal mine when all of a sudden water just started seeping in. Where does this water come from? Who knows? But I do know this. If you're in a hole underground and that hole starts getting filled with water, what are you? What, what, what the hell are you going to do, right? And, and, and that's what's happening in, in, inside this coal mine. A million questions but by the way, for those of you who are uh, watching us on YouTube, look, look how tiny this hole is that is being used to try and get a camera, first of all, down there to see what is uh, going on. And second of all, you see how you see it's eerie, isn't it? Look at that. Look at look at that. Look at the camera going down the hole from the top. That hole is about 16 uh, inches wide in some places only. And then, of course, they had to shore it up uh, to make sure that it in and of itself didn't some didn't suddenly collapse. And, and they're trying to send people down there and they're sending cameras down there. And again, we're talking about almost two football fields deep to uh, to try and uh, rescue these 10 miners who are uh, stuck under there trying to uh, survive. There's no way of communicating with them, by the way. It's not like in the case in Chile where they were able to somehow at least communicate with them and were able to send them food because they don't exactly know where they are all this time. 
And now the latest information is we're hearing like the government is saying, we're shutting this rescue operation down. Now it's just going to be a recovery effort, which essentially means they, they think these guys have perished, that they're not around anymore, that they've died. Uh, or, or, you know what, to be just perfectly honest with you, that they're just going to give up on this. They think, you know, even if they're, even if they are still alive somehow, that the chances that they're going to get to them anytime soon is so remote that by the time they do get to them, they will have perished, they will have died, or they're dying right now as we speak. And imagine saying that to their family members, their wives and their brothers and their mothers who are sitting outside right now asking government officials, what the hell's going on? This is just, uh, this is such, such a difficult situation. And we do this podcast, Rick Sanchez News, because we think there are stories that often aren't told, you know, that involve 20% of the Latinos who make up the, the 20% of the population of the United States. So I think these are stories that should be shared and oftentimes aren't. And that's why, that's why we focus on stories like this that nobody else is telling. And, and what a shame, right? What, what a shame that this story, you know, I just can't help but think sometimes that what are they less than us? Because they're Mexicans, they don't deserve to have this story told. It kind of bothers me a little bit, you know? I mean, in the end, we're all God's children, right? Just because they're 70 miles from a certain place, their story doesn't matter. Just because they're 70 miles from a certain place, their lives matter less than lives do in Texas or Florida or anywhere else. I mean, I, I think about this as, you know, almost in certain ways, discriminatory coverage. Because you know damn well if this thing were happening anywhere near San Antonio, every news crew from all over the world, including the United States, would be there following this as if it were Jessica McClure who had just fallen into a well. When everybody in the world, or certainly in America, seemed to stop everything they're doing to see if we can get little Jessica out, one little girl. And I think that was somewhere in the eastern part of the United States, in Midland, Texas. That's right, Midland, Texas. I'll never forget that day. The amount of attention that we all poured into that story. Why can't we do a little bit of that now? I mean, I'm just hearing about this story now. We should have been covering this story from the beginning. So what the hell actually is going on? And some, how does something like this even happen? Joining us now is uh, Ray Pilcher. He is a geologist. He's with uh, Raven Ridge uh, Resources to try and just help us understand what this is, how it happened, how we can make sure it doesn't happen again, and, and, and what are even the chances that these guys survived or still are surviving for all we know? Mr. Pilcher, thanks so much for joining us, sir. Well, thank you, Rick. And um, thanks for that introduction. I have to say that uh, it's it's hard to contemplate these kinds of things, you know. And um, if you don't mind, I, I have a few comments about uh, your intro, which I think was really powerful. No, please, please. I mean, I'm just a regular guy and I'm thinking as a journalist <laughs> and as an American who happens to be Latino. But, you know, we're all Americans after all. And that was the impression I got when I started reading about this story. So please, yes, add on. 
Well, I think, first of all, uh, the the way you described being in that coal mine was probably pretty accurate. I mean, it's uh, I doubt that the water seeped. I think it rushed in uh, from what, what we understand. And I only know what I'm reading because I haven't been to the site, but uh, they were mining in proximity, uh, proximity to another mine that was filled with water and they must have undermined it. Uh, in other words, they punctured it somehow and that water started to flow and they didn't have any way of controlling it. Moreover, the, the uh, shaft that they had dug to get down to the coal seam was quite narrow as you, mm -hmm. uh, you accurately reported and we saw the pictures that means that only one person at a time could go down or come up. There was no alternate shaft for them to escape from. So they were trapped almost immediately. And, you know, quite, quite frankly, I doubt after a few days they were still alive. You know, I don't think they've been alive for a long time. What kind of mine was this? Can you describe it for us? Sure. It was a coal mine. And, and I should also say that according to the laws of Mexico, it was a uh, illegal mine. They did not have a proper lease or a permit or any of those things. And the reason for that is, is that um, there have been, of course, surges in coal prices. There, uh, you know, AMLO uh, decided that uh, that they needed to refurbish a power plant there in northern Coahuila. I'm sorry, so, who's who's AMLO? Oh, sorry, the president of uh, the president of Mexico. Uh, his his uh, operador, his name, for whatever reason, gets shortened to AMLO. Oh, 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 yes, yeah. President Obrador. Okay, got yeah. it. Mm -hmm. And so, sorry. And so um, he he has decided to uh, refurbish to reopen that uh, coal that uh, coal fired power plant, uh, and so it caused a surge in coal prices locally. And that my understanding is there were a number of these artisanal mines these. Uh, sort of mines, very small, working with just a few people uh, to bring some coal and make some extra money for the families. But wait, it's I want to better understand what you just said to us. Uh, it, you, I heard you say it's an illegal coal mine. If it's yes. an illegal coal mine, how in the hell is it operating? Well, I think that's a, that's probably the prime question, really. Why is it? Why were these allowed? And it's not unknown. And there are many other ones in the area. There are some bigger ones that are uh, owned and operated by steel mills that need the coal for coking. There's some that the power plant owns and cement companies own. But then there are all these many small mines that have no permits, probably never get visited by safety enforcement personnel. So it makes it sound like you're just describing to us that, you know, I in my backyard, I happen to know that there's coal. So I'm going to big a, dig a big hole and go down and I'm going to get it. And who the hell is the government to tell me, you know, how deep I can dig it or how I have to uh, uh, dig that hole, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Sadly, that's that's the case. Wow. Something like that. I mean, maybe it's not the backyard. Are they maybe right? Should we the have property. the right to dig wherever we want to and extract whatever we want no. from Mother Earth without the government interfering? I mean, particularly not in Mexico, because the minerals belong to the to the government. So you have to have permission to extract any kind of mineral, including oil, gas, coal, whatever, uh, gold. 
And it's the so. government's job to try and regulate that because minerals belong to the government and you can get a license, but you have to abide by certain rules, I imagine. And I am guessing from what you're telling us, these guys were just doing it lousy fair. They didn't give a crap about the government or its rules. Yeah, I think that they probably had experience in coal mining. I mean, obviously, the way they sank the shaft, they knew where the coal seam is, although there are many, many mines along that that uh, that that uh, outcrop of coal. And they they um, and, you know, I've been underground in a couple of mines in that area, big mines, and uh, they can be operated safely. This one clearly was not. What is it like? for those workers to even get to that place, which by my, my calculation was like between two and three football fields deep underground. How'd they get there every day? They were, it looked like to me uh, that they were, they probably had uh, some kind of hoist to, to bring the coal up. So they probably uh, went down a ladder. They may have had some safety equipment tied to them so they could be pulled back up if needed. They had uh, normal sorts of, you know, safety equipment, helmets or hard la uh, hard hats and lamps, etc. But it, they were never, I mean, from the moment, you know, I've, I've been in a couple of mines like that. And I'll tell you, for me, you can't ever feel safe. You're not safe. Hmm. You Anything, any misstep, would cause you to fall hmm. or if you like this, if you had a roof fall or if you had water come in or you had a gas problem, which that, that area, those coal mines are gassy. And that's why I've been in a couple of them because they are so gassy. And that's the work uh, that my company and, and my work with the UN is involved in. Well, we'll get, we'll get to the methane potential danger in a moment, but I'm really curious to as to how the, how this water got into this mine and and why would you put a mine which is essentially a hole in the ground next to a place where there is a residue of water that could eventually get into that mine i mean it just it seems illogical to me how, how did this even happen it, poor enforcement no 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 one would have been permitted officially permitted to open a mine that way with uh, knowing that there was a very large mine that was filled with water above them as they were in their uh, their workings trying to pull coal out. So how did the water then um, get from its source, as you call it, to right. the mine without somebody seeing this happening and immediately saying, get them out of there, get them out of there? It was a, they were underground when it happened. In other words, the, the source of the water was beneath the surface. It was in a mine also. And they, as they were mining, they caused that separation between their mine and the mine that was filled with water to weaken and then collapse. And then the water rushed in. It, this was not a leak. This was <laughs> probably a major flush of water through that mine. Why didn't anyone, I mean, I know I hate asking these questions afterward, but I feel like I have to. Why didn't anybody see that coming? Right. I don't know. That that part is really, I mean, you know, these miners were not just guys off the street, clearly. I mean, they, they had done substantial amount of work to get there, to get underground, to bring that coal up. 
Either they didn't know that that mine existed because the mine maps were not available to them, or they didn't seek that information, or there aren't any accurate maps that show the extent of the workings, which is also possible in an area. I don't know if the mine that had the water in it was something that was opened in this century or last century. You know, that area has been mined for more than 150 years. All the interviews that I've read with miners and their families say that many of the families tried to convince the miners to not do this work, but they would say the pay is really good. I guess they mean comparatively speaking. Can you speak to yeah. that? I mean, it, 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 coal miners everywhere get paid better than usually the local rates, you know, because it's often the only industry in the area. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a respectable uh, job, obviously. Mm -hmm. it, you have a commodity that you can bring directly to market like these guys were. So they they had control over their lives from an economic standpoint in a way that probably is not afforded to many of their other, uh, you know, their other citizens in that area. But it's really dangerous, isn't it? That's why the pay is better, quite yeah. frankly. But yes, it is very dangerous. I mean, that's, you know, in the article that uh, was posted on the UNEC website, one of the things that's that's many of us that are in this business, you know, we always talk about all of the issues with coal mining, you know, how uh, how dangerous it is, how much gas comes off of it, how much dust, how much, you know, burning coal is bad for the environment. But one of the things that we never say is, you know, our coal miners are doing this. Our, our coal mines are producing this coal and we're consuming it. We always kind of look at it like it's, um, <laughs> you know, something that just happens without our participation. Yeah. But in fact, that's not the case. What was it like for these, God bless them, these souls that we don't know, but we imagine they probably have perished, as you say. What, what did they experience? Tell us what it was like down there when, I guess, this rush of water, as you say, confronted them. Well, it's it's hard to know. I mean, they were either completely inundated by the water, the inrush, and they drowned. Or if there was a certain level that the water stopped at, and then they were left with uh, some amount of air trapped in the mine. Mm. They breathed that air and probably sipped off of the water to keep alive until they either ran out of air or they they perished from hyperthermia. It was probably quite cold in there, um, you know, because after you get a few tens of meters beneath the surface, it's a constant temperature and it's colder than your body, obviously. So, the, you know, heat would be leaving their bodies and uh, they died of God knows. I mean, but they just don't, I don't, I don't, if, if any of them survived, it would be really a miracle. And I'd love to see that. So you're saying the only possibility to have prolonged past the rush of water was an air pocket that they could have stayed in for some time. But that of course is dependent on their ability to withstand hypothermia, the cold, uh, their ability to breathe, I imagine after a while there would be some oxygen depletion there as well. That's that's the case. And unless there was a crack or a fissure that goes up to the surface that no one's 
uh, aware of. But, you know, the problem with that issue, I mean, even if they existed, um, the water, they had the flooding that took place on the surface. You know, that's the that's the other just alignment of horrible things that would happen. You know, they had a huge rainfall and that area was flooded by rainfall. And of course that water all seeks to go underground anyway. And that's what happened. They have light though, right? They have, don't they have the lights that they wear on their helmets? But but they're, they're battery powered and I'm not sure which models they had, but they're good for maybe 12 or more hours. But after a while you're just in the dark. So they would have been down there completely in the dark if they survived in a pocket of air essentially waiting for someone to rescue them. And under these conditions, almost two football fields down, there's no way to really be able to rescue them, right? At least not in any short-term basis. No, that's right. And I and I, I mean, one of the things about rescue, mine rescue, is, is that it's important to recognize that. And, and we've seen where this has not been the case, unfortunately. But Mine rescues are supposed to make certain that they and their team stay safe because it's clear that you don't want mm-hmm. to add more tragedy on top of another tragedy and complicate any kind of rescue activities. So I'm, I know from reading uh, some of the Spanish language newspapers that uh, had better details about the rescue teams, they were, you know, they sent in the Navy uh, scuba divers to go in first. They couldn't get past the debris fall. Mm-hmm. So that means that there was a collapse in the the main uh, entryway, small as it was, it was even worse. And then right after they were there and they had the pumps going, they were down to about eight meters from the bottom of the shaft. Then the rain started and they lost all their hmm. their uh, headway and, and the mine filled up with water again. So it's almost like e- even if they were there, they can't get to them because there was a blockage of sorts. No different than a blockage in our sink when we try to fix it, for example. We just can't uh, get the snake down there, so to speak. They couldn't get past it. They might have been able to get past it if it were dry conditions. Uh, There may have been ways that they could have shored up the the entryway and and, uh, pulled materials out. But fighting water and rising water, I just think it was. And these guys were Navy scuba divers. They're not miners Mm. right these are guys that were looking for a way to find a passage and see if they could see if anything was still potential in terms of rescue and they couldn't do that what 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 are the probabilities we all watched the movie and watched every single report i mentioned jessica mcclure everybody remembers that case in midland or at least those of us who are who remember a little older like you and i um, right. We all remember the case in, in with the Chilean miners, of course, yes. and that was a dramatic and really unbelievable rescue. But it leaves me to ask, what is the probability of being rescued when you're in a mine situation like this one where there's been a collapse, et cetera? You know, it's it's highly dependent on the support systems that are in, uh, involved in, in rescue. You know, when you look at uh, countries like uh, China, the United States, uh, Poland, I'm just naming some countries that are countries that have a lot of mining, have a lot of a lot of regulations, a lot of enforcement, trained rescuers uh, and have permits that are set up in such a way that 
mine rescue is possible. In other words, you couldn't open a mine without having additional ways to leave the mine. You know, and a lot of mines have uh, pods that are underneath underneath the mine so that if there is certain kinds of problems in the mine, people go to those pods. They have uh, things that help them survive. They have water, they have food, and they have their own oxygen, et cetera. So they're able to at least stay safe in some cases for several days until they can be rescued. Um, in mines like we're talking about, this artisanal mining, which takes place also in China, I don't know of it happening in the U.S., but that doesn't mean it doesn't. Um, certainly it's happened in other, other countries. And these illegal mines, and I'm saying illegal because they're outside the permitting system, they're outside the normal safety norms. So those mines, there's no real way to address the situation once you have that kind of accident, that kind of occurrence. Wow. So that must be very, very uh, difficult then for uh, the miners when they make a decision that they're going to uh, go to work at, at, at one of these mines. I mentioned something, Ray, at the beginning, and I, I don't know how you feel about this. It, it bothers me a little bit that we sometimes as Americans don't pay as much attention to the plight of someone in Mexico, these miners, for example. And when you really think about it, you know, just as a human being, they're only 70 miles from our border. So why do they matter less? Why don't we pay attention to this kind of story? First of all, they don't matter less. In fact, it's this is really hard for me to talk about in a lot of ways. You know, um, the people that get trapped, these people in this mine, they were trying to really do the best they could for their family. Yeah. Um, they... And it's not just it's not just um, people in Mexico that we don't pay attention to. It's people, you know, there was a major disaster in a coal mine in Russia a few months ago. There there was one. There were two in Poland only a few months ago. There there was one in Kazakhstan last year. These are devastating accidents. These accidents don't just affect the families; they affect the communities. In some cases. Some communities never recover from from these kinds of things. Hmm. Uh, certainly the families don't. And certainly these families won't be taken care of in the same way that if someone perished in this country in, this, in a similar situation. Hmm. But you're right. We do have this tendency. And I don't know what it is. I can't believe knowing what I know about American people. I don't think that they think that these people are worth less. Right. I just think. We're too busy and we just don't, you know, and let's face it, news is a commodity. But Elon so, Musk, e e Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, jo Joe Biden, I don't know, name name your favorite uh, person who's part of the national conversation. Any of those person passes gas and we do 1,500 stories on them. A worker, a guy who represents what America's really all about or a group of workers, they do things and we don't tell the stories. We're so caught up with the celebrity and the politics and the inside the beltway bullshit. Sometimes I just think we got to get better at understanding the fabric of America. The fabric of America is people like my dad. 
people who got up every day and went to work uh, and then, you know, came home and tucked me in. And, you know, America's workers are the best thing about this country and the rest of the world, too. And that's why when I see a story like this about these guys underground trapped because all they wanted to do was provide a living for themselves and for their families, we barely even cover the story. Yeah, I'm talking about it. You're talking about it. But, man, we're few and far between, Ray. Well, it's true. I mean, I come from a working family. My dad was a steel worker. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked in a steel mill a couple of summers while I was going to school. I'm glad I did because I learned what how hard that kind of work really is. And uh, I Good mean, I, you. you know, and and me too, well, by the way, I, I my dad <laughs> took me to work with him when I was, you know, like you, I, I started working when I was like 14, 15 years old, just going yeah. with my dad. And he says, I'm taking you with me. And we're going to the shop and you're, we're driving a truck today. We got to deliver furniture up in Palm Beach and we don't have a place in the truck, but you can sleep in the cabin in the back. And, you know, hey, um, it sucked, but it made me a better person, I think. For what well, it's worth. and I think it makes us attentive. You know, I think to answer your your question, the big question is, why do we cover Donald Trump and not the miners? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things is, is that that it is, you know, I think news is a commodity and depending on what sector it's serving, that's part of it. Mm-hmm. But that isn't all of it. I think Americans don't know where things come from. Hmm. We don't know what happens, what really happens when we flip the switch on our wall. Hmm. We don't know where the aluminum comes from that our, has our Coca-Cola or our, our beer in it. You know, we don't we don't understand how every day we depend on people that we don't even know their names. You know, we don't know. You know, most people think of unions as an example, as something that that's something of bygone era and maybe doesn't have any uh need now but but unions were the things that caused mine safety to take place hmm. and worker safety to take place and we just don't we don't pay attention to that very much anymore you know i was thinking when you were talking about where things come from but i was just thinking of my own refrigerator my wife went out of town yesterday she took the kids they're all at disney world i stayed behind working as usual and i went and opened the refrigerator and i noticed that everything is being more shrunken and, and more uh, plasticized these days. I remember as a kid, I would see that my mom would have an entire chicken in the refrigerator. And then it turned into just a leg. And then it turned into just a thigh. And then it, and today I go in the refrigerator and there's just pieces of chicken individually right. wrapped in pieces of plastic. And I can say the same thing about our cheese. I can say the same thing about, you know, the milk. I, almost everything is now just being reduced to pieces of things wrapped in plastic. And I'm sitting here wondering when I opened my refrigerator, I don't even know what half the stuff is or where the hell it came from or who did what to get it to me. So just thinking of the example you said about, we don't know where things come from anymore. We really don't. No, no, we don't know. I mean, you don't even know if all the pieces of chicken that's in that package came from the same chicken. You know, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I, I don't mean that as a bad thing necessarily, <laughs> but, but it's, we have just, separated things from we're we're so far from the earth at this point it's amazing you know hmm. it's about workers it's about real people and it's about yeah earth our planet why why do you think since we're on this 
everything that we are is because Americans came together and built things, speaking now as Americans for this about this great country of ours. And yet it seems like today there's a move to put those workers down and not give them what they deserve. America in the last 40 years has been more productive than it ever has in, has been in its entire history. So we've made more things GDP-wise, right? Gross domestic product. Right. Yet the wages of the average worker in this country have gone down precipitously. While the guys, I guess the big guys, right? The bankers, et cetera, have never been more wealthy. And yet, despite that, first, we don't hear that story enough. Nobody knows that. And second of all, when we do hear about workers collectivizing or trying to argue for something, generally speaking, the media covers it as if they're trying to get away with something rather than defending them. Why is that? Well, I, I'm not I'm not sure how to answer the last part of the question, but I do think that that disparity between the wealthiest and the people who actually produce and manufacture in this country are the very things that destabilize um, destabilize governments. You know, it's important that we start to see more equity when it comes to um, to pay. And it, it is not necessarily just represented by the hourly pay, but it might be things like medical coverage. It might be, you know, all kinds of things that we associate with the wealthy having, but it would be just as easy to provide them for uh, for the workers, you know. And, you know, we talk a lot about how America was built, but, you know, we don't build as much as we used to. We don't manufacture as much. Uh, hopefully now some of the legislation that's passed will incite uh, investors to determine that, yeah, the, the U.S. is a really good place to work again and to build things and make manufacturing. But we, we need to face in and we need to really look at what we're doing as a society and think more than in four month or four year increments as to what happens with the next administration. You know, we really need to think about what we want to happen in America and start to visualize that and plan for an equitable future. How can we expect that any administration will care about people like you and my father and your father when those people are beholden to the people who give them money? almost as if it's now legal bribery in this country. Whether they're Democrats or Republicans, we know that more often than not, they are being fed most of the money that they use to run their campaigns by people who aren't regular Americans. Regular Americans only give 2% of the donations to politicians. The other 98% comes from millionaires. So why would we expect they would do anything for working class people, Ray? Well, I think that um, that's a very good point. Clearly, um, campaign refine or campaign finance reform is something that really needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get the guys to vote against uh, certain things that they find to be very favorable at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it's um, I don't know how you solve that conundrum, but it's another it's another thing that takes us further away from what. We profess to be the important things in our society. And let's just face it, in most every other country. I mean, you know, there's a lot of time spent 
showing how Americans are different than everybody else. But I can tell you from the travels that we have in our com company, you know, my business partner, I have been pretty much all over the world in coal mines and, and uh, industrial areas. The people are the same. They speak a different language, but mm. we're all we're all basically the same. We have so a little bit different skin or, or eyes or whatever. But you know, you get past that, and it's they're just like the guys that we grew up with, yep. or the men and women. You know, and so we're really deluding ourselves if we think that we're so different. And you know, basically, when we go back to the coal mine and we look at what happened there, part of it was bad practices. The other part was Mother Nature. When the rain came, that's what put an end to any potential. We set ourselves up to think that we can, you know, outsmart Mother Nature, and we we're sure showing that we can't, you know. <laughs> and this is this is just one example of it, you know. Rather, and politics lead us in the wrong direction. It leads us into things that are inside our heads and not things that are underneath our feet, and that's. That's a real issue that we have. Yeah, and these are the issues that we like to talk about. I mean, we do uh, Rick Sanchez News here on Agua Media because we want it to be a unifying force. We want to be able to tell our story as Americans. In this case, I'm a Latino, but as Ray says, the difference is slight, if even there between what is a Latino American and what is a non-Latino American or an Irish American or a Jamaican American or an Asian American or any other kind of American. Essentially, we're all the same and we all love this country and we want it to do better. And it does bother us when we see either that we're slighted or our stories aren't told or we're ignored or worse, that people say things about Latinos like we're trying to come to this country when in fact we were here before the pilgrims and we're trying to hurt this country when in fact we're not. And, and that's why we do this. And that's why it's great to be able to talk to somebody like you, Ray, who has a worldly view. We like to call that a wider angle lens here at Agua Media, a different way of seeing the world. And the fact that you've traveled makes all of the difference. And I invite people to continue to, you know, we're growing like a weed here now. We're just unbelievably, we're doubling our audience every week. And I think it's because we have these kinds of conversations. So listen, uh, whether you're listening to us on Spotify or on Apple or wherever you get your podcast, do me a favor. Send this to somebody else. Let them know that we're doing this. Share this message because we think it's a it's a good message. And if you happen to be watching us on uh, on YouTube, then hit that little button that says subscribe. And Ray, really, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation with you. You know, you're a smart guy and you seem like a good guy too, my friend. I really appreciate that, Rick. And uh, it was great to talk with you. And, you know, let's keep our fingers crossed that uh, if there's ever going to be a miracle, it's the one that takes place in uh, the Pinabete mine. Yes. So. Uh, if, you know, there's even the slightest or remotest possibility that one of those guys could still be alive, we'll all say a little prayer tonight that somehow he'll be able to get out of there. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for being with us. Okay, thank you. Ray Pilcher, geologist, president, Raven Ridja Resources. He's a consultant, as you can see. You know, when you spend a lot of time going around the world, you learn a lot of things. You get a little different perspective on humanity. And I wish there were more uh, Ray Pilchers out there so that we could all get along just a little bit better. This is Rick Sanchez News here on Agua Media. Thanks so much for being with us. And as I always like to say, adelante, dale, y vamos con todo.